At Morgan Stanley, old school hard work meets bold new thinking. At 88 years old, we still see the world with the wonder of new eyes, helping you discover untapped possibilities and relentlessly working with you to make them real. Old school grit, new world ideas. Morgan Stanley. To learn more, visit morganstanley.com slash why us. Investing involves risk. Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, LLC. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Frank Holland and gang. I'm Melissa Lee, and today for Kelly Evans, here's what is ahead. Markets rebounding on hopes that the Fed could be done raising rates, but does that mean Powell and company think there could be more pain ahead in the banking sector? One of our guests says the recent stress is actually good for the stock market. He'll make his case, tell us where he's putting money to work right now. And no further rate hikes should be good news for home buyers, right? Not necessarily. We'll dig into the divergence between yields and mortgage rates and what it means for the spring housing season. Plus, TikTok CEO testifying on Capitol Hill, reassuring lawmakers the app is not a national security threat as multiple states take action against it. And President Biden consider, considers an outright ban. We'll, we'll have the latest and the implications for the rest of the social media landscape. But first, let's get to today's rally. Dom chooses the New York Stock Exchange with the action. Dom. It is a rally. And at one point, Melissa, this morning, we did see us get back almost all of the losses that we saw in yesterday's session post-Fed announcement and, of course, post-Yellen comments to that Senate banking subcommittee. If you take a look at the Dow Industrials right now, 280-some points to the upside. That's respectable, up about 1%. We were up north of 480-some points at the highs of the session. So kind of gives you an idea of where we've pulled back from. The S&P 500 is just now, it was just below 4,000. Now we're at 3980. So giving back a sizable chunk of the gains there. The Nasdaq composite, really the outperformer so far today. Big tech certainly in focus. You mentioned those social media stocks, but also big tech like Apple, Microsoft, very much in the green right now. So watch the Nasdaq composite up 206 points. If you look at the rate picture, that's part of the reason why. We are seeing a bid for Treasury bonds and notes, and therefore some of those yields moving lower. You can see the 10-year note yield, 3.45%. 4.81 for the six-month T-bill, just a bit higher here in terms of the overall yield for the 30-year long bond, 3.72%. So those yields are starting to price in a little bit more of that cutting story. We'll see if the Fed actually follows through with that kind of prediction. Also, on the sector perspective, today so far this week, if you take a look at the sectors that have been outperforming, it has been energy and communication services. You can see they're up about 1% to 3%. The utility sector has been the real laggard so far this week. So we are still up, by the way almost a couple percent for the S&P 500. And the stock of the day is not really one that we talk about that often in terms of the S&P 500, but it's block. Hindenburg Research out out now with a very bearish note. They pretty much say that there is a short selling situation here for block. Now it's down 15 percent. It's off the session lows right now. But that's the reason why a lot of people are focusing on this after Hindenburg's big Adani call out in India that sent that stock reeling. People are paying attention to why block is in their target right now. We'll see what happens here. Melissa, I'll send things back over to you. All right, Don. Thanks, Don Chu. Well, as expected, the Fed hiked interest rates for an eighth time in the past year, but kept their rate forecasts unchanged. Our next guest says this means the tightening cycle is about to end with the Fed raising rates one more time in May before pausing. Joining us now is Jay Bryson, the chief economist at Wells Fargo. CNBC senior economics reporter Steve Leisman is with us as well. Great to see you both. Uh, Jay, I'll start off with you because what the markets seem to be telegraphing at least today is that there will be trouble ahead for the economy in terms of what we're seeing 
seeing in the move in the in the Treasury markets. Uh, there will be trouble ahead for banks, according to what we're seeing uh, in, in terms of the, the banking sector stocks today. And there's a flight to safety going on because the tech trade is still on fire. I mean, is, is that the right message that we should be taking away from the Fed? Well, you know, I think that what the Fed is going to be doing here is, and, you know, Jay Powell's been saying this consistently, is they're probably going to be on hold for a long period of time. Um, you know, they want to see inflation come back down towards their 2% target, and we're still a long, long, long away from that. So they may stop raising rates here in, in May, but it's not like I, I think they're going to be cutting rates come the third quarter. Steve, how, I'm curious, how has the expectations for Pivot um, settled out in Fed funds futures since the meeting yesterday. And I asked you that because, you know, he pretty much said, I don't see that in the cards this year, but I'm just wondering if markets are actually accepting that as truth. Okay, so it depends on your definition of pivot. Is mm -hmm. a pivot a pause or a is cut. a pivot a cut? No, because, a cut. Um, a cut. Okay, so if we have that Fed rate outlook chart in the back, and I'll just take a look at it while uh, folks are looking at it at home, there is a strong uh, expectation. There's the January 24 one. And so what is that for? Wow, it's really down. It, it, it keeps falling. Powell says no cut and markets price in more cut. That's yep. where we're at right now. I, I, it was at, it was at five, I don't know, 540 a couple days ago. And then it was 513 this morning. And then I just opened this up again. It's four, it's 408. So do the math. The uh, peak funds rate at least um, uh, in the futures market, is 491. So there is, you know, call it 90, call it 85 basis points of cut built into the market. And I can tell you when that begins. I mean, it looks like the first full quarter point cut would be built in, um, you know, by August or so. So that's where we're at right now, which is sort of like, uh, and, and another thing that's happened, Melissa, is the gap, which is the mm -hmm. same thing. The Fed is at 513. The market's at 408, so you do the math right there. It's more than a full percentage point of gap between the Fed and the market. And I was just looking back at this, um, Melissa, when the gap changed in February. Remember we went down from zero? Sorry, it was, it was at 75 basis points, and then it went down, and the market got in sync with the Fed for the year end? Mm -hmm. You know what happened to the S&P in February? It went down 5%. So yeah. that filling of that gap or the closing of that gap can be painful for stocks. Oh, definitely. And that's that's why I asked the question. I mean, what the markets seem to be telegraphing, Jay, is that they are expecting, unlike at least what the Fed is telegraphing at this point, something to really break so hard that the Fed will need to cut. And that's that's to me what that chart tells me. And I'm wondering how you see it play out, given a banking crisis well, unfolding, et cetera. <laughs> So uh, there's a little bit of disconnect, I think, between yeah. the stock market and the bond market. You know, if, if the Fed's going to be cutting that much by the end of the year, I think it's because you're in real economic trouble at that point. It's not necessarily a financial crisis, right? But you are in a recession right now. And, you know, I'm not a stock market strategist, but I guess the question I would have is, are stocks priced for a recession at this point? I look at the S&P 500 what, it's down maybe 20% from its peak? I mean, that doesn't seem like a recession sort of thing to me. So there's, I think there's just a little bit of disconnect to what's going on. Either that or, or, the, or the market thinks that the Fed is, is going to blink, and as the first signs of trouble, they're going to start cutting. I'm not convinced of that. I think for them, the 
primary um, corporate that they're trying to deal with here is inflation, and they want to see that come back down. Yeah. Steve, it looks like you want to jump in. So, yeah, it's interesting to me. I mean, the question is, how do we get there, right? I think there's some expectation in the market now that the Fed comes down to where the market is, in part because of some of the realities that we're talking about, which is uh, credit tightening in the economy. Mm -hmm. And and that's okay if that's what you think. The trouble, uh, sort of emphasizing what Jay was saying, is I don't think a credit tightening event is going to be good for the stock market. Um, if indeed that's how we get to lower inflation. So I think it's not crazy. And I don't know, by the way, even though... Um, Powell said he doesn't think we're cutting this year. He also said that they're going to be guided by what happens with credit markets and how that impacts the economy. So I don't think it would be a huge about face for Powell and the Fed, in fact, to cut this year if, in fact, we do have a really and serious negative fallout from the credit tightening. I'm not sure, mm -hmm. Melissa, that we're talking about that kind of big enough event for that to happen so far what we've seen seems to be limited to the banks we're talking about and some of the regional banks. Yeah. Um, but, Jay, in terms of the credit tightening part of the equation, I mean, we already saw tightening on its way prior to what happened in the banking sector. I mean, we knew that from the senior officer loan survey, for instance. We, we've had the data points. And so how do you see this plus the lagged effects of prior rate hikes um, impacting the economy? Yeah, so if you thought there was going to be a recession this year, and we do, I think you see this, what's happened in the last two weeks, is raising the probability of that and making the recession deeper than what it was before. Now, again, we're not talking 2008, sort of 2009 sorts of numbers, but we think, you know, it's going to be somewhat of a recession. And the credit markets have just gotten much tighter in terms of bond spreads moving out. I would think in coming weeks you're going to see credit spread, uh, uh, tightening in, in terms of smaller and regional sorts of banks and banking system in general. And I think that all acts as a headwind on economic growth. And that in terms and, and coupled with the lag effects, Melissa, that you were just talking about, you know, I think it talks we're looking at a recession and starting later this summer and in the fall. Steve. Yeah, so I was pouring through that senior loan officer survey this morning, uh, Melissa, of course, after uh, Powell raised it as a key mm -hmm. barometer or metric of, of, of policy. Um, and uh, just to Jay's point, you see the tightening, at least right now, was in both large and medium and all respondent banks. And there it is again. This is the percent of banks that are tightening their credit standards. And it's not where it was in the pandemic. It's not where it was in the great financial crisis, but it is quite a bit higher than it was previously. Um, and it has to do with commercial and industrial loans. Mm. It has to do with loans on land. It has to do with loans for commercial space, but not mortgages. That was the one area, interestingly enough, it looks like they're letting the interest rate handle the credit standard in the mortgage business. But in other places, they are indeed drawing back and tightening on credit. Um, I will say Goldman Sachs has, a, has an impact potentially from this uh, thing you're looking at here of a quarter to half a point of GDP. I haven't seen what they're oh, wow. estimating the impact could be on inflation, but it's going to be it's going to have an impact, just perhaps not catastrophic. And think about how focused this is. I mean, we already saw the, the impact on the sectors that are expected to feel the most pain from the tightening lending standards to come because of the difficulties in the smaller and regional banks. Yeah. Um, guys, thank you so much. Great conversation. Jay Bryson and Steve Leeson. Good to see you both.
Our next guest says the recent bank stress is actually a tailwind for the stock market. He brings us a few names he is buying. Joining us now, Sandy Villery, partner and portfolio manager at Villery & Company. Sandy, good to see you. Yeah, thanks for having me. So we were just talking about how credit is going to tighten significantly. So how do you square that? I mean, how does that actually help the markets? Yeah, I mean, the, the big problem we have right now, obviously, is the, the Fed and inflation. And if you have uh, tighter credit markets, if banks are struggling, I mean, really, the regional banks are kind of the backbone of the economy. Um, I think that that could actually be a, a positive for the stock market since uh, since there's so many negatives out there. It could cause the uh, the Fed to already, you know, pause and perhaps go lower in rates by by the end of the year. So you are assuming that it is going to be enough because so far we I mean, even with the rate hikes, we haven't really seen an impact. We've seen the impact on tighter lending standards. We have not seen the impact on jobs, for instance. And so therefore, we haven't seen the impact on inflation much. But you think that this time it's actually going to work? <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's still, you know, 1.9 jobs available for every one person looking. And I think that's that's what the Fed is trying to do is throw a cold towel on the economy and take that slack out. And I think they're going to get it done. In fact, I think it's happening uh, much, much quicker than we all uh, an an anticipate. And so, um, again, that, that negative for the economy and getting inflation down is going to be a positive for not only stocks, but for probably growth stocks, which we've already seen, you know, so far this year with the Nasdaq up, you know, over 14 percent. I mean, it's been a heck of a move mm -hmm. uh, given given what, what what's to come. So you see that the move in the Nasdaq more as a, a signal that the economy won't slow down as much as we think versus a safety trade because it, they seem more defensive because of their cash balances, et cetera. Is that correct? Yeah, and, and all, that, that's right. And also, it's a it's a catch up from 2022 where we saw you know growth you know underperformed value by about 30 percent. So we're seeing that you know kind of kind of push up tech stocks as well. But you know it, it's telling us that rates are probably going to go lower. Uh, and then when you look at the bond market, I mean, you look at the two year Treasury. It's incredible. In the last five days, it's gone from like a 510 to a 390. I mean, that's telling you, even though Jay Powell won't won't, won't say it, uh, that rates are probably going lower. And that's going to push, you know, tech stocks higher. I want to get to your pick, Sandy, because they are growthy names <laughs> on semi, which is up 36 percent. But I want to get to the laggards here, Caesars, as well as Freeport McMoran. Um, why do you like those at this point? Yeah, so Caesars, uh, it's, it's a bit contrarian because it's exposed to the consumer. They also have a little bit of debt. So as, as you know, as interest rates go up and that should certainly impact them, um, they've got a lot of uh, opportunities. They can sell an, a, a strip asset. Tom Reed's an incredible CEO, and I can promise you um, they're, they're bringing in a lot of money right now over the, uh, you know, Final Four uh, tournament as we speak. Um, and then um, uh, I, I like uh, uh, On Semiconductor as well as a, as a growthier name um, that has exposure to 5G. Uh, Hassan Okori's been an amazing uh, CEO as well, and I think that's going to that's gonna work out well. And then lastly, Freeport, there's just uh, a lot more demand for copper through electric vehicles that use four times the amount of copper as a combustion engine car, and there's just not enough copper out there. It takes, you know, a decade to start to, uh, you know, mine for more copper. So I love the way the supply demand dyna dynamics are lining up. And, and I think Freeport's one that's, you know, been under pressure and can certainly act really well. Sandy, nice to see you. Thanks. Thanks, Melissa. Sandy Villery, Villery & Company. Coming up, a rare divergence between the price of Bitcoin and Coinbase shares. The SEC warning of potential securities charges against the company. We'll take a look at what's at risk and what it means for the rest of the crypto space. Plus, how will the Fed's rate hike hit real estate? Moody's chief economist Mark Zandi will join us with why he's disappointed in the central bank's decision and what it'll take for the housing market to find its footing. 
And as we head to break, take a quick check on the markets here. We continue our games here across the board. We've got the S&P 500 up by almost a percent. The Nasdaq up by 1.6 percent. Check out, by the way, Netflix, uh, which is sitting at a new multi-month high, up 9 percent. The exchange is back right after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs and the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Shares of the crypto exchange Coinbase sharply lowered today after getting warned by the SEC of potential securities charges. Oppenheimer also downgrading the stock to a market perform, citing an unhealthy regulatory climate. The SEC's warning going beyond Coinbase has just issued an investor alert urging caution around crypto assets. So how worried should investors be about these potential regulatory challenges? Emily Parker is executive director of global content at Coindesk. Emily, great to have you with us. I guess there's a couple of things, you know, there's this whole um, you know, maybe flight to safety sort of aspect of Bitcoin going on right now. And then there's a the whole regulatory framework, which seems really it, it almost seems like the regulators at this point have woken up to FTX. They've woken up to what's gone in the banking sector as it relates to banks that house crypto assets like a signature bank. And they're saying we got to crack down. Um, so what's your take on what the environment actually is for for Bitcoin? I think it's fair to say that the regulatory environment in the United States is decidedly unfriendly toward crypto right now. So we've seen an SEC crackdown on various companies, various projects. We've seen quite a quite a few even in the past few months. Um, so there's on, on the one hand, there's that happening. On the other hand, Bitcoin's price isn't reacting that dramatically to these regulatory developments. And I think there's a few reasons for that. I think one is because in general, what drives Bitcoin's price isn't necessarily crypto related news or Bitcoin related news. Often it has more to do with the Fed or with interest rates. That's been largely what's been driving Bitcoin's price. So even though we've seen this regulatory crackdown in the US, Bitcoin's been doing okay, basically year to date. It's actually been doing pretty well year to date. The other thing to remember is that, you know, as we've discussed before in the show, Bitcoin and cryptocurrency is not only a U.S. phenomenon. It's all over the world. So even if the SEC cracks down on crypto and Washington cracks down on crypto, it can still live overseas. And I think we're going to be increasingly seeing that from here on. Are we basically saying, you know, innovation in Bitcoin, innovation in blockchain, um, we're willing to seed that here in the United States with with what is going on on the regulatory uh, basis? I think that's what the SEC is saying. I think it's fair to say that they're saying that right now. So here's the problem with the SEC. It's not so much that it's too strict. It's that 
at least according to crypto advocates, it's that it's too confusing. People don't really know what's allowed and what's not allowed. And there's just this, these two totally different narratives. There's the crypto industry narrative and the SEC narrative. The SEC narrative is, hey, we just want you guys to play by the rules. If you play by the rules and you come in and register, you know, we'll work with you. But the crypto industry and Coinbase specifically is saying, actually, we've tried to play by your rules. We've tried to come in the front door. We've tried to talk to you. We've asked you for feedback. And we just kept hitting a wall. And basically, there's no path forward for us to register as a cryptocurrency exchange. So that's sort of, that's where the issue is. And I think we're definitely hearing more and more murmurs, which is, is that, you know, we don't really know how to be safe here in the United States. And there's plenty of other places where crypto exists. Why don't we just go there? And I think we will see that. And I think that may be partly the SEC's intention. What happens to the like the VC money, the money invested in these projects? I mean, it's it's great that at least Bitcoin, the tokens like that asset class is doing well. And that that may help the investment case for some of these projects, Emily. But at the same time, I would imagine that VC folks would be having cold feet at this point in terms of putting money into uh, into a venture which may not have a clear regulatory path. Yeah, that's a great point. So, okay, well, first they can invest in projects that are outside of the U.S. But Mm -hmm. I think you've actually hit the nail on the head in terms of what the problem is, because no matter what the SEC does, I think it's fair to say that over the short term, crypto is not going away. It's not going to go away immediately. It's not going to disappear overnight. It's still going to be here. And you're still going to have American VC capitalists, you're going to have American investors, they're still going to find ways to invest in this. So basically, by pushing cryptocurrency overseas, all you're really doing is giving the SEC less control over it. So yes, you're still going to have investors exposed to it, but they're not going to necessarily have the investor protections of something that is registered in the United States. So I think you could make the argument that if the SEC really cared about investor protections, they would actually try to keep some more of these projects at home, where they actually have some sort of say over what's going on. Because as you know, a lot of the great damage that was inflicted on on U.S. investors and and, and VCs were overseas projects, right? They weren't even in the U.S. And that's because, you know, part of the reason was that the SEC just didn't have any any way to kind of get them to play by the rules. They were outside of the U.S. Um, I wanted to get your take on on the move that we've seen in the price of Bitcoin, Emily. Um, If we see the banking sector stabilize, if if there's a magic wand waved and the banking system is, is deemed stable and secure and all the problems are solved, how much does Bitcoin give up? Um, well, I think that's a that's an interesting point. So there's a lot of different takes on this, right? So some people say that the basically all the crisis crises that is happening in the banking sector is sort of proof of why Bitcoin should exist, right? Like the whole point of Bitcoin is that it's supposed to be somewhat independent of these banking troubles, right? It doesn't require a bank. It doesn't require a third party intermediary. I mean, obviously, you know, crypto does need banking to some degree, but there is definitely one narrative out there that says all this all these crises in the banking industry is a vindication of Bitcoin. It shows that Bitcoin needs to exist. We need an alternative financial system, right? And and you could say that maybe some of Bitcoin's price reaction appears to be acting that way. But on, on the other hand, you know, in the current moment, especially in the U.S., you know, for you still need banking to some degree in order to transfer, you know, Bitcoin to fiat or to get Bitcoin to dollars. So, you know, that aspect of it, if there really is a crackdown, a continued crackdown and a continued disappearance on crypto friendly banks, Mm -hmm. that's definitely going to hit the crypto industry. Mm. Emily, thank you. Emily Parker. Coming up, crypto is not the only hot topic in Washington right now. TikTok CEO is testifying on Capitol Hill as Congress weighs banning the app in the United States. We'll bring you the headlines plus the fallout for advertisers and social media stocks. And as we head to break, take a look at the sector heat map with 10 of the 11 groups in the green today, led higher by no surprise technology. Energy, the worst performer, down six tenths of a percent. The exchange is back right after this. 
This episode is brought to you by AARP. Ten years from today, Lisa Schneider will trade in her office job to become the leader of a pack of dogs. As the owner of her own dog rescue, that is. A second act made possible by the reskilling courses Lisa's taking now with AARP to help make sure her income lives as long as she does. And she can finally run with the big dogs. And the small dogs, who just think they're big dogs. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Learn more at aarp.org skills. Welcome back to the exchange. Markets right now are uh, higher, although we have given off the best levels, given up the best levels of the day, I should say. The Dow had been higher by as much as 481 points, but right now is uh, settling for a 140-point gain, up four-tenths of a percent. The S&P 500 up by about seven-tenths of a percent, and the Nasdaq still uh, the biggest mover of them all, up by 1.5 percent. Netflix, it is leading the S&P 500 on pace for its best day since October. This after a new report shows gross subscriber additions in Canada are improving. Remember, Canada was one of the countries where Netflix started cracking down on password sharing last month. It's a streamer's biggest market outside the U.S. and makes up 4% of total revenue, according to FactSet. Elsewhere, take a look at solar stocks. In the green again today, the Invesco solar ETF, TAN, is now up 8% since Monday, tracking for its best week since early January. Enphase, SolarEdge, both leading the S&P this week, of about 12% since Monday. Santa Fe and Regeneron are both higher after the company said one of their jointly developed asthma drugs helped patients with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or so-called smoker's lung. The phase three trial shows the drug led to a 30 percent decrease in exacerbations. Those results uh, pushing Santa Fe to a nine-month high, while Regeneron is trading at an all-time high. And speaking of healthcare, we are less than a week away from CNBC's Healthy Returns event on, Mar- on Wednesday, March 29th. We'll hear from CEOs, scientists, investors, and innovators in the industry. To register for this virtual event, you can scan the QR code on the screen or go to cnbcevents.com. Now let's get to Tyler Matheson for CNBC News Update. Hi. Melissa, great to see you. Good afternoon, everybody. Here's a dramatic look at what NATO patrols are seeing in the North Sea. NBC News has exclusively obtained video from the Norwegian military of what they say is a Russian sub near the vulnerable drilling platforms that provide a lot of Europe's energy and underneath vital gas pipelines and telecom cables as well. After last year's sabotage of a Nord Stream pipeline, the Western Alliance is keeping a very close eye on all of the critical infrastructure uh, in the waters between Norway and Scotland. Meantime, in France, there are protests in cities around the country against President Emmanuel Macron's unilateral move to raise the retirement age to 64. Uh, In the northwestern city of Rennes, uh, protesters threw objects at police who responded with water cannon and tear gas. And in South Korea, a different kind of street action. After escaping from a local children's zoo, a zebra tried to avoid recapture workers who were eventually able to corral it with the help of a tranquilizer dart. A woozy zebra. Melissa, back to you. (laughs) Ty, thanks. Tyler Matheson. Still ahead, there is one number buried in today's new home sales report that was a big surprise. We'll tell you what it is and what it means for the health of housing. And throughout the month of March, we are celebrating women's heritage, sharing the stories of women leaders in business and those of our CNBC teammates and contributors. Here's Morgan Brennan. When I was in my 20s in college studying anthropology, I, on a whim, on an archeological dig in Kenya, shaved my head. After I did it, I was surprised to find myself mourning the loss of my hair and what it meant for my identity as a woman. Now, eventually I embraced it, I even had fun with it, but it was this literal lesson 
in challenging society's assumptions about what my life should look like. That would be my advice to other women and really to everybody. Don't let anyone tell you who or what you should be in this world. Get curious, get experimental, challenge the status quo. Even if you try something and it doesn't work, you will be stronger for it and you never know what opportunities may arise. Welcome back. The Home Builder ETF ticker XHB. Higher today as new home sales climbed in February, but it's not a straightforward beat. Diana Olick joins us now to dig into the numbers. What is driving buyers these days, Diana? Well, demand is just still strong, Melissa, but the report on home builder sales, as you said, was a bit of a mixed bag for February. Sales popped up about 1% month to month, but the actual raw number of sales was below expectations because January's big jump was revised down. That said, this sales count is based on signed contracts, so people out inking deals during the month and take a look at mortgage rates. They fell sharply from their October highs, getting close to 6% in January, but then rising again in February. Sales, though, still held on. We also saw a beat from KB Home yesterday after another beat from Lennar the week before. Both were saying that they continue to see strong buyer demand, albeit, of course, lower than a year ago. Which begs the question, where are we with mortgage rates now? Well, Let's take a look at March. They kicked off over 7% and then the start they dropped on the SBB news. Then they recovered a little bit, then dropped yesterday on the Fed news. But rates didn't move much at all today, which means that investors are still trying to figure out if the bank stress is over or if the Fed is suggesting it's not. Regardless, rates are still about two full percentage points higher than they were at the start of last spring. And while home prices are easing a bit, they are still very high. Back to you. Diana, before we got to you, we mentioned a very important number that jumped out, and you highlighted this number before. Um, it is home sold but not built. So what is the significance of that? Yeah, it's homes sold, not even started construction hmm. yet. And this number has jumped really dramatically in just the last two months. And what that means is that, you know, builders are going to probably be starting more homes. We've seen housing starts drop month to month to month. And we're like, when are they going to start building again? What this would seem to indicate is that they are going to have to really put a lot of holes in the ground in the next coming months, because also the number of homes sold that are under construction or are completed has dropped while the ones not started has jumped. All right, Diana, stay right there. Our next guest says housing is already in a recession, thanks in part to those high home prices, and it's gonna take a long time to play out. Let's bring in Mark Zandi, he's chief economist at Moody's Analytics. Mark, great to have you with us. You know, the last time we spoke, Mark, I think a banking crisis happened. And so I'm wondering what you th how you think that's going to impact um, the ability of buyers, for instance, to get that mortgage. I mean, Diana had mentioned a little bit of a respite when it comes to mortgage rates that has come, but we are going to be facing tighter lending standards. Yeah, I don't think for residential mortgage loans, though, mm -hmm. I don't think the banking crisis is going to affect the, the ability to get a you know a Fannie Mae or Freddie Mac or a FHA loan. Uh, it might impact some of the jumbo part of the market uh, on the margin, but usually those are bigger banks that make those loans, and they're in pretty good shape. So the fallout from the banking crisis will be significant. Uh, it's going to affect the availability of credit, but that's for commercial real estate loans, C&I loans, commercial industrial loans, consumer loans, less so for residential mortgage loans. 
But Mark, what about for the builders? I mean, I was just talking about how they're going to have to do more construction to meet this growing demand. They rely very much on the regional banking system. How is it going to be for them? Yeah, good point. Uh, yeah, I was thinking about demand, but you're right. For In terms of supply, in terms of the ability of not so much, I don't think, the publicly traded home builders. I think they have, lot, have access to lots of different sources of capital. So I think they'll be able to get the capital they need. But for the smaller builders, and of course the home building market is very fragmented, lots of smaller builders, they do rely on construction and land development loans, and in many cases from small and mid-sized banks, and they are going to have a hard time getting those loans. So yeah, so the supply side of the market may be impaired uh, you know, as these banks try to work this through and may add to your statistic of uh, homes that are sold but uh, not yet started because builders may not get the capital they need to actually start those homes. How does tightening credit play out in your mind, Mark, when it comes to the impact on the economy and, and therefore, of course, housing ultimately? Yeah, meaningful. Uh, I think this is a big deal. Uh, you know, small, mid-sized banks, these are banks, let's say, with less than $200, $250 billion in assets. Uh, that's the uh, that's the bulk of the banking system. They they account for half of all CNI loans, commercial industrial loans. They account for half of all consumer loans. Those are credit cards and unsecured personal lines. They account for three fourths of all commercial real estate loans. I really, in terms of the housing market, I think the the part of the market that's going to be most affected is the multifamily market. Uh, in terms of multifamily developers getting the credit they need. To put up the next new project, uh, that uh, we we need those rental units, we need those homes, but they're going to have a difficult time. So, you know, my sense is, Melissa, this is going to shave uh, meaningfully off of growth, and it's probably worth, you know, if I were going to translate this into rate hikes by the Fed, it's at least a couple rate hikes, maybe three. You know, that uh, they, I don't think the Fed needs to do now because of the tightening in credit conditions as a result of the banking crisis, and that's that's to date. You know, the, I think the script. I, think, I hope the script has been written, but you know maybe not. So given what's happened so far, I think the credit uh, fallout will be quite material. Uh, maybe I misheard this, Mark, so I want to clarify. You say that, that what is going to happen in terms of tightening of credit is the equivalent of three rate hikes, three basis, 325 basis point rate hikes. That's a, that's a yeah. lot of tightening. And on top of what the additional hike they still might do, on top of the lagged effects of the hikes in the pipeline. Got it. That's exactly right. I, you know, maybe I'd say two, maybe two, three rate hikes. But yeah, I think that, and there's certainly a lot of uncertainty around that. We'll have to see how this plays out. But that's my sense of it. Yeah, that's so. If they if they actually raise rates another quarter point, which is what was uh, in their at the meet the the, uh, the the results yesterday from the FOMC meeting, on top of the say effectively two, three rate hikes because of the credit conditions, that's a hundred basis points, a percentage point. That puts the federal effect of federal funds rate target at close to six. I I think that's a pretty significant uh, increase in interest rates, and I do think that puts the economy in jeopardy. I, you know, if if I were on that committee yesterday, I would have strongly argued, hey, let's uh, you know, th- th- let's just take stock here of what's happening to the banking system, what it means for the availability of credit and economic growth. We can always come back and pivot and focus on inflation. Goodness knows we need to do that, but the first priority's got to be. The stability of the banking system, and you know, they, they of course they did not do that, and you know, I do think they're running a risk here. But Mark, we know that the mortgage rates don't exactly follow the Fed funds rate, and they are actually being elevated more because of pressure on MBS from the banking stress. So, given what you're saying about that, if mortgage rates then continue to go higher, what is that going to mean for home prices? Oh, they're they're going down. Uh, so I think what. House prices are going to continue to weaken, you know, uh, over the next year or two, 
or so, just to, you have to restore affordability. Uh, uh, at the current house price, at the current mortgage rate, at people's current income, uh, housing, single-family housing is just unaffor unaffordable. I'll give you a statistic. The, for the typical home buyer, uh, buying the typical median-priced home at the prevailing rate at 20% down, they need to uh, come up with $1,900 a month to make that mortgage payment. That's more than a third of their income. That's just not affordable, and I don't think we will see any meaningful pickup in demand for housing until that's restored. And that happens in one of three ways, or all three. That's lower mortgage rates, that's higher incomes, or lower house prices. So I do expect house prices to, to continue to come down. Even, at, even, you know, even if mortgage rates come in a little bit, uh, we need to see you know, some meaningful further uh, moderation decline in house prices. Mark, thank you. Mark Zandia, Moody's, and of course our own Diana Olek. We've got a Thank news you. alert on Block, the company responding to that Hindenburg research report. Christina Parks Nebles has got the story. Christina. Yeah, it was a scathing uh, report two years in the making, according to Hindenburg. But now, finally, Block has put out a statement, and they say that they intend to work with the SEC over this, but more specifically, that Hindenburg is known for what they call these types of attacks, which are designed solely to allow short sellers to profit from a declined stock price, which today we saw the stock drop over 12 percent. Uh, they have said that they are, highly, they are a highly regulated public company with regular disclosures and are confident in their products reporting compliance programs and controls. And the key is the last line in this is we will not be distracted by typical short seller tactics. So this is the first time that Block is responding to the scathing report put out by short seller Hindenburg saying that Block misled investors about costs, misled investors about the monthly active users, inflating that number by uh, repeated accounts, blocked accounts, all being counted in that total. And they have finally said that this is just uh, Hindenburg Fault or not fault, I should say Hindenburg is known for these types of attacks and benefiting from the stock price dropping. Christina, thank you. Christina Partsenevelis. Still ahead, the TikTok CEO testifying before a congressional committee looking to reassure both lawmakers and the public it poses no security issues as the U.S. considers a ban. We'll get the very latest from that hearing and what it all means for TikTok's competitors next. Welcome back. The TikTok CEO still testifying on Capitol Hill. Let's get to Kayla Tausche for the latest. Kayla. Melissa, TikTok CEO Sho Chu has been under questioning by the Republican-chaired House Energy and Commerce Committee for over three hours, fielding bipartisan criticism for the company's content, ownership structure, and data security. Chu telling lawmakers that TikTok employees will not be able to access old user data after its data storage project with Oracle is complete, but acknowledge the company is not there yet. Today, all um, U.S. user data is stored by default in the Oracle cloud infrastructure, question, and access question, to that is controlled is, do any by American personnel. Dance employees in China, including engineers, currently have access to U.S. data? Uh, Congressman, uh, I would appreciate this. This is a complex uh, topic. Today, all data yes, is stored yes by no. default. No, it's not that complex. Yes or no, do they have access to user data? We have, after Project Texas is done, the answer is no. Today, there is still yeah, so some data saying, that we need yes, to delete. 
TikTok tells CNBC that that data is from before October 2022 and that no data after that date has been stored. But the hearing comes as lawmakers are galvanizing support for a ban on the app and the Biden administration weighs whether there's an alternative structure under which the app could operate in the U.S. China's Ministry of Commerce rejecting the U.S.'s request for the parent company to fully divest TikTok, retaining access to TikTok's powerful algorithm. Chu said with enough time and expertise, he believes TikTok could replicate that, but Melissa, the jury is still out. You know, Kayla, when you think about TikTok and its reach, it, it's one of the few things that actually unite the American people. If you think about more than 150 million Americans using the app on a regular basis, there aren't too many other things that Americans can actually agree on. And I understand the Chinese threat is very popular these days uh, in political circles, but do people really want to own a vote saying that they wanted to ban TikTok? No, and that's why the political buck has been passed on this one back mm -hmm. and forth between the executive and the legislative branch. You heard the Commerce Secretary just a couple weeks ago say that if you banned TikTok, you'd lose every vote under the age of 35, which certainly is something that the administration is acutely aware of. That being said, you know, Congress is a, you know, is, is a bicameral, bipartisan body, and certainly if there were a piece of legislation that were reached that would put some guardrails around the company or would outlaw it or allow the White House to outlaw it, you, you've seen some support that has been galvanizing for that type of a move. All right. Kayla, thank you. Kayla Tashi. Let's sure. turn now to what the hearing and a potential ban would mean for other social media companies. Shares of Meta, Snap and Pinterest all higher today. They have been higher on this whole notion that TikTok could be banned. Uh, Julia Borson has more on this story. Julia, I mean, if, if we think that a ban may be off the table, I mean, the question is how much could guardrails actually help a Meta or a Snap at this point? Well, look, there, this is a really complex issue, and there does seem to be growing frustration from both sides of the aisle with the CEO of TikTok, Cho Chu. And I would say even if there's not the, the threat of a full-out TikTok ban, I would say that on the table is still the idea of a for sale or even dramatic limitations of TikTok's operations. All of those potential threats to the future of TikTok has sent rival platforms soaring. Soaring. Meta, Snap, Google, as well as Pinterest, all trading higher today. Now, take a look at this chart that shows TikTok's popularity. 56 minutes spent daily on the app compared to 48 minutes for YouTube, 34 for Twitter, and then 31 for Snap and Instagram. This is all according to Insider Intelligence. Now, Moody's writing, quote, a U.S. TikTok ban would benefit YouTube, Instagram, and Snap, likely resulting in higher revenue share of the total advertising wallet. Saying given the revenue scale of YouTube and Instagram, the TikTok ban creates a smaller revenue opportunity, but it could be materially positive for Snap. Bernstein saying Meta, Google and Snap stocks could jump on a confirmed ban, writing that if TikTok were to be banned, it's 150 million users and their 2.8 trillion annual minutes would go to Instagram's Reels because most top TikTok creators cross post their videos on Reels and also to Snap's Spotlight, which has the highest demographic overlap with TikTok. Now, it is worth noting, though, that there does seem to be a bipartisan push for new privacy legislation, as well as reform of Section 230, which could mean that all these social platforms could be held liable for the content on their platform. Yeah, Melissa? I was, was going to ask you about that, Julia, because the security of data is one issue which seems is in the process of being addressed with Project Texas. So once that's completed, in theory, you put that issue to the side. But the other line of questioning from Congress has really been about misinformation on the platform. And you could replace TikTok with Meta. You can replace TikTok with, I mean, you name all of the other big cap technology companies and they should also face the same sort of questioning. 
Is there a reason why there's there's such a focus on this because it is a Chinese company more so I mean, than others? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely, because there's this question of whether the Chinese government is having an influence on TikTok and, and causing manipulation of the U.S. population whoa, 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 as a result whoa, whoa. of that. <laughs> but, but that is happening or can happen on U.S. platforms as well. I mean, that has been the case of so many people, right, that that the Chinese are using various uh, social media platforms to manipulate American thought and opinion. Well, well, I mean, and, and what you're really referring to is this whole mm-hmm. Cambridge Analytica scandal and this whole question of whether in the 2016 election there was manipulation of Americans mm. um, by by foreign actors. This is different, and I think this is really being treated differently. And I have to say, this is a very heated hearing with constant interruptions of, of TikTok CEO Sho Chu um, because of this idea that there is Chinese ownership and because there is this sense that still, as Kayla just mentioned, there is some user data that is not fully moved over to the U.S. just yet. So I think what's essential here is that even if there isn't a full-out ban, even dramatically limiting um, the operations of TikTok or forcing a sale of the U.S. operations of TikTok, this idea that forcing a sale of these U.S. operations could amount to a ban because ByteDance might not want to sell its algorithm or, or or make its algorithm available to what would effectively be a U.S. company. So it's a very complex situation here, but the role of China as, as in ByteDance being a Chinese company is really at the center of much of this questioning. Yeah. All right, Julia, thank you. Julia Borston. Coming up, the S&P real estate sector higher today, but office rates are taking a hit. One analyst says there are indeed risks facing commercial lending. The death of the office is way overblown. The key numbers to watch and when to consider jumping in next. Last quarter, commercial real estate values fell for only the second time since the great financial crisis. And while the street is raising red flags about commercial lending, our next guest says the pessimism around the death of offices is way overblown. Joining us now is Alexander Goldfarb, senior REITs analyst at Piper Sandler. Alex, great to see you again. Um, The narrative that the office is dead, you know, existed before the banking crisis. How does the banking crisis, why did that strengthen this narrative? Well, uh, Melissa, thank you for having us on. Uh, they're having me on. You know, here at Piper Sandler, when we look at what's going on in office, it reminds a lot of what happened pre-pandemic with retail, where everyone thought people would shop online, Amazon would take over, and every shopping center and mall would close down. Far from it. When you look at what's going on in office right now, the issue is that there's no buyer, there's no equity buyer, and there's no debt market. So unless you're a marquee building like a one Vanderbilt in New York or a 555 in California, you know, marquee buildings can get debt. Uh, but if you're if you're not a marquee building, it becomes really difficult. And right now, what you're seeing in the stocks is a reflection that people don't know what to make of what's going on. Are companies, how much space do they need? What's going on with the cities? Is everyone moving down to, to the Sun Belt? And all of these concerns coupled with regulators telling the banks, hey, ease up on, on office loans. We don't want you making loans. At the same time, over-levered or, or even uh, regular landlords are going to their bank saying, if you don't cut us a deal, we're going to give you the keys back on the building. Suddenly the bank's are like, no, 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 we don't want the keys. We'll make a deal to restructure that loan. All of this going on creates angst. But as we look at it, we say, hey, these stocks have really been hit hard. We're not ready to get bullish. Uh, but certainly where they were trading, we thought it was worth taking the underweight rating off of Ornado the other day and moving it up to neutral. So what did what did you what did you see? It's just the value. It's a valuation issue. What did, what are you going to see in the sector that will make you feel like like things will trade more along with the fundamentals of these stocks? 
One is a restoration of the debt markets, right? So right now, there is really no functioning debt market. It's not just for office buildings. You go around the different commercial property types, mm-hmm. one-off assets, you can get a loan. But if you try to do portfolio lending, very difficult. If you try to do CMBS, very difficult. So again, sponsorship matters. The quality of the asset matters. But we need the debt markets to, go, to come back. Second is people need to feel comfortable with office where it's going. As we all know, we have too much of it and we need to figure out how much do we really need. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we also have continued layoffs. As you and your colleagues have been talking about white collar layoffs, that impacts office. Those need to subside. We got to go. Alex, good to see you. Thanks, Alex Goldfarb. That does it for us here on The Exchange. Tyler and Contessa is getting ready. That's coming up after this quick break. Power Lunch. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.